This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for being with us again. I guess now that we have a progressive administration, we have to go back to what we did during the Obama years, since this is technically Obama's third term. Well, shadow term. Uh... What we're going to have to talk about again is the issue of religious freedom. It was nice, wasn't it? For four years, we didn't have to worry about religious freedom because we had a president who was friendly to Christians and a president who recognized that you have to balance everybody's freedoms in a country like ours and that you can't have big gay coming along and telling little girls in public schools that you have to shower and go to the bathroom at your public school with a boy possibly standing next to you. Uh, what, what a concept for a president to come along and say, no, that's not right. We're not going to have schools implement those kinds of policies. Well, as you know, or maybe have not yet heard, the Equality Act is coming back. We're going to do a lot more on this on tomorrow's show, but it's coming up at the end of the week. The House is going to be voting again. It is an absolute travesty. It is a huge attack on Christianity, probably the biggest assault ever on Christianity in our lifetime. And that was the opinion I know of Bill Donahue over at the Catholic League. I think that he's right on that score. We're going to get into it, like I said, in more detail tomorrow. So be about making your voice heard in Washington because this is just really, really disturbing stuff. It's so radical. You really can't overstate it. But on the issue of religious freedom, there is some good news, some good news. So I want to get to the good news. First of all, it wasn't long ago that Arkansas passed a law declaring religious organizations to be essential. Isn't that refreshing? Asa Hutchinson, the Arkansas governor, signed the law into measure, recognizing that churches are essential, and it's all about helping to protect churches and other religious organizations from being targeted, penalized, or discriminated against during a time of emergency. What do you think that's a reference to? The pandemic, of course, because the churches really took it on the chin from some of these tyrants, as we've been discussing for quite a few months now. And they have a quote here from Jerry Cox, the president of the Family Council, saying that Act 94 of 2021 is called an act to require that religious organizations are protected during an emergency, will help protect religious groups and churches from discrimination without hampering the government's ability to respond to an emergency. So bravo, Arkansas. But here's the even better news. This is something that's going on in other states as well, including California. (laughs) I really hope they recall Gavin Newsom and then pass this. This would be so wonderful. Maybe this is all about God working together for good for those who love the Lord. Arkansas passed this bill. Other states, including Montana, Indiana, and Arizona, have bills making their way through the approval process. And now in California, we have Senator Brian Jones, God bless him, introducing the Religion is Essential Act. This is a bill to require, again, like Arkansas, the state and local governments to treat religious organizations just like they do other services 
services that are considered essential during pandemics. And here is one of the quotes from Senator Jones. He says, why is it that Newsom and most Democrat politicians in our nation trust shoppers that are packed into big box stores to social distance, but don't trust leaders and congregants at houses of worship to do the same, to protect the elderly and the vulnerable? Practicing one's religion can be done safely, even during a pandemic, and the state should never have turned those who practice religion into second-class citizens. Amen, brother. I don't know if he's really a brother in Christ, but let's just say amen, brother, for the sake that he deserves a massive high five. This is a bill sponsored by the California Family Council and several other Christian advocacy organizations. And this is in the wake of the fact that the Supreme Court struck down Governor Newsom's total ban on indoor worship services. That happened just recently, a 6-3 decision. And that was awesome. So this is really good news. Now, as part of this Religion is Essential Act in California, here are some of the provisions that would be included. It would require that the governor and local governments, again, as I said before, treat religious services as essential, just like retail, during any declared state of emergency. It would prohibit the state and local governments from discriminating against a religious organization during an emergency. You mean like closing them, but letting the abortion clinic stay open? Right. It would require officials to permit religious services to continue operating during an emergency. It would prohibit them from enforcing a health, safety, or occupancy requirement that imposes a substantial burden on a religious service during an emergency and allow a religious organization that has been subject to state or local government overreach to file a claim for relief in an administrative or judicial proceeding. So pray that California will be able to get this legislation through. It's going to be a little tougher there. But praise God that somebody's doing this. And in all these states, all 50 states should be passing legislation like this. I was even saying this at the time. It was We were barely out of the hard lockdown of March of last year. And I was saying, why aren't these things going to the legislatures? You know, these, these never-ending emergency orders from governors. I mean, how long can you qualify as an emergency when you're moving into month nine, month 10, month 11? What? Does all the legislature in your state have broken legs? They can't make it to the Capitol and vote on this or get on a Zoom call? So good for them. I'm glad to see this. Now, over in Montana, let's talk about what's going on there. Just recently, Montana lawmakers heard testimony on a bill that supporters say would ensure the right of religious freedom. It's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yes, we know RIFRA on the national level. And, of course, opponents said this could open the door to discrimination. You know, only in a world where big gay has undue influence could you ever construe freedom of religion as being a means of discrimination. It's completely bonkers. The Senate Judiciary Committee held this hearing on Senate Bill 215, which is sponsored by Senator Carl Glimm, who's a Republican. And the bill would state that the governments of Montana, the the state and local governments, can only put a burden on a person or organization's right to free exercise of religion if their action is essential to further a compelling governmental interest and the least restrictive means of achieving that interest. Now, you got to listen to one of these legislators standing up because it's just so predictable. This is an update on this from KTVH. Listen to this. Cut one. The bill is titled as a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and supporters say a number of states have adopted their own versions in recent years. SB 215 would say state and local governments can only put a burden on a person or organization's right to free exercise of religion if their action is essential to further a compelling governmental interest and the least restrictive means of achieving that. 
Supporters say they want to ensure potential impacts on someone's religion are considered with the highest scrutiny in courts. But opponents say the language is broader than other similar laws, and it would encourage challenges to existing laws, particularly local non-discrimination ordinances. During the hearing, Senator Bryce Bennett, a Democrat from Missoula and member of the LGBT community, asked Glim to justify the potential impacts of the bill. This bill is very personal to me, and the testimony that we heard today was personal to me as well, because I have lived those experiences. This bill would allow people like me to be denied housing, to be kicked out of restaurants, to be denied health care, to be fired from my job, not because of something that I did, but simply because of who I am. Oh, give me a break. Cut out the drama already. The sniffling, really? The choked up voice? You're sitting in the Montana legislature. You're going to get kicked out of your job if this bill becomes law to protect religious freedom. Really? How come the First Amendment didn't do that to you? And and by the way, how in the world are you going to get kicked out of your job when you were duly elected? Unless you do something to agitate your voters and they recall you. I'm not really sure how that works. You're going to get kicked out of your house? See, the reason I'm saying this is because this is exactly what groups like the Human Rights Campaign have been trying to do for a long time. They're trying to work up sympathy for all of these alleged terrible things that happen to the LGBT community if Christians have religious freedom. And it's bunk. It's not true. It's not true. There is no rife problem of people being denied housing. I mean, you might be able to find somebody here or there where a Christian couple don't want to rent to two men in their boarding house or something like that. I don't know, but just the drama is so over the top. And it's the same sort of thing where you have these kinds of activists going from legislature to legislature testifying against the horrible experiences they had with alleged conversion therapy. And it turns out that they won't even name the therapists and these people were bust in. It's all a ruse. And these are the same people who want to crush religious liberty via the Equality Act. I'm, I'm over the drama. I'm over, over, over it. We must stand up for religious liberty. We're going to come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855 855- 
402 baby or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237. 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Right as President Trump was about to leave office, the American atheists, along with Americans United for Separation of Church and State, filed suit against the U.S. Department of Education. Their target is the department's regulation that denied federal funding to universities that discriminate against religious student groups. The lawsuit wants to force faith-based student groups to comply with the university's non-discrimination requirements, even if that means adopting principles that violate their core religious beliefs and values. And if they don't, they risk losing recognition as a campus group altogether. Now, Ratio Christi Campus Apologetics Alliance is going to be acting as intervening defendants in support of this regulation protecting campus free speech. We're going to get an update now from Dr. Corey Miller, President and CEO of Ratio Christi, and Travis Barham, who is Senior Counsel and Deputy Director of the Center for Academic Freedom at Alliance Defending Freedom. Corey and Travis, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Janet. Thanks for allowing us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You bet. It's great to have you. Travis, let me start with you, because some people might not remember the details about this particular regulation. Why was this implemented in the first place? What was going on at some of these college campuses that necessitated putting this into place? Yeah, the reason that the Trump administration put these protections in place is to, to reiterate a very basic principle that universities cannot dictate how student organizations choose their leaders. And on far too many college campuses, if a Christian group simply said, we want to have people who share our beliefs, who actually know Jesus Christ as their Savior, serve as our leaders, then that was enough to get those groups derecognized or effectively kicked off campus. And that's something that shouldn't happen under the First Amendment. And the Trump administration put in place these regulations that require public universities and colleges to comply with the First Amendment. Those, those are the regulations that are now being challenged, and that's why Rocio Christie is teaming up with ADF to protect those, protect those, those uh, free speech protections. Excellent. Now, one of the things that they're claiming in this lawsuit is that the regulation itself is unconstitutional and it will inflict significant harms on the students. What do you say to that particular case, that, that angle on the case, I should say? Uh, that's nonsense. University officials should not have the unilateral power to dictate how student organizations select their leaders. And a victory for the, a, a legal decision that protects these regulations and that uh, rules in favor of Rocio Christie will also benefit all other student organizations because regardless of the student group's perspective, whether it's a Christian group or a Muslim group, a conservative group or a liberal group, Every organization should have the freedom to select leaders that share its beliefs. That's the whole idea 
behind forming an association, behind gathering together with people of like mind to advance a common viewpoint. Yes. Now, Corey, of course, you guys know what it's like to try to fight for recognition on campuses. People know about your particular case involving the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, for example. But why did you guys decide to file suit as intervening defendants in this matter as well? What what went on in your thinking saying, yeah, we really need to be part of protecting this regulation? Thanks, Janet. Yeah, it's because we have an interest in this. Our mission is equipping students and faculty with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. The purpose of the university is the pursuit of truth, and that assumes the ability to hear and engage in a diversity of viewpoints. Well, we bring a diverse viewpoint, and so the current regulation supports rather than subverts that purpose of the university. It supports rather than subverts our purpose, and it is... uh, across the board, supportive for all other campus groups as well. Right. Now, I know a number of schools have denied your chapters the right to choose student leaders who agree with your mission. What's gone on in that regard? Because I know you guys have been through this before, and for a lot of people, they might not know some of the details. In many cases, they've inhibited us from uh, forming a chapter on that university. In other cases, uh, we get rejected off of the university campus. (laughs) The university is supposed to be about Uh, viewpoint diversity in the pursuit of truth. And in this case, it really challenges that. And so we support um, this regulation. And the bottom line is universities have no business telling student organizations who they can and cannot choose to lead their groups. Exactly. And I really appreciated your point, Corey, when you said that by bringing this lawsuit, the American atheists are discriminating against the rights of certain religious students. I mean, do they not see the irony here, Travis and or Corey? What do you think about the irony in making this claim in the first place? Because they're basically backing up this idea that if you're a Christian organization and you want to choose leaders that actually hold to your religious beliefs, uh, they, they think discriminating against those people is fine in the name of non-discrimination. None of this makes any logical sense. Uh, you know, the, the notion, it, it just doesn't. The whole idea of having a, an atheist student group, for example, would be to have atheists serve as its leaders and its spokesmen to the campus community. That's how an atheist group expresses its ideas and communicates its message. Well, the same is true of a Christian group. If a Christian group is going to have a Bible study, if a Ratio Christi chapter is going to have a study on the scientific and philosophical reasons for following Jesus, it only makes sense for someone who actually believes in Jesus to lead that Bible study. And that's that's just gathering together with people of like mind and selecting leaders who share an organization's viewpoint. That's a basic freedom that Americans have enjoyed since before the Constitution was even adopted. Mm-hmm. And that's all that's going on here on these campuses, and that's all that these regulations protect. Well, and what does this say about the ongoing fight between religious freedom and the religious freedom that we've enjoyed the entire time our republic has been intact and the rise of so-called gay rights? We keep seeing these clashes again and again and again. Travis, from a legal standpoint, is there any way to reconcile these two sides? Because it would seem First Amendment is right there in the Bill of Rights. I, I don't really see how they can get around all of this ultimately. Well, ultimately, in this case, this isn't real. This isn't a situation that necessarily involves that clash. This is a base, a more fundamental question of who, of what does it mean to form an association to advance a common viewpoint, to advance a set of shared ideas, yeah. and those ideas can run the gamut. And that's why a victory on behalf of 
uh, Rasho Christie in this case, a victory, you know, a defense and an upholding of these regulations from the Department of Education benefits all groups from across the spectrum, whether it be an LGBT group, whether it be a Christian group, whether it be a conservative uh, or libertarian group, or whether it be a, a, a more progressive political organization. Everybody understands this concept that you ha- should have leaders who share and uphold and express the ideas the group is designed to advance. Yeah, that's important because I know that the Secular Student Alliance on whose behalf this complaint was filed includes an LGBTQ student along with some atheists and humanists. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a big group there. What about this complaint's contention that the Department of Education actually doesn't have any authority to enact the regulation? Is that true? No, the the Department of Education has authority to insist that if school is going to accept federal funds, uh, or if a public university is going to accept federal funds, that it should uphold the federal constitutional rights of the students who attend the school. Uh, I mean, the government has an interest in ensuring that the fundamental and priceless constitutional rights that have been that are the subject and the the reason that so many servicemen have sacrificed and indeed paid the ultimate sacrifice throughout the centuries. They have an an interest in making sure that those rights are upheld. That goes all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. That's why the government exists. And so uh, the the department has the authority to insist that students' First Amendment rights be protected. Well, that's right. And going back to you, Corey, what happens to Rocio Christie in the event that this regulation uh, is repealed, if they actually prevail in court, which we hope and pray they do not? But how does that actually impact your groups on the ground on some of these college campuses? Look, Janet, it, it puts us in a threatening position to maybe not exist on those campuses. And our groups have been able to give life to people, not just viewpoint exchange and ideas and things like that, but we've seen students' lives transformed, students who were, um, you know, very depressed, down and out, and it's given them a new lot on life. So kicking off a group uh, from campus because they require their leaders to hold beliefs that are central to that group's very existence doesn't serve the university very well. Yeah, that's right. What are your requirements, just out of curiosity, when your campus groups select their leadership? What, what all do you require of your leaders? Well, they need to uh, embrace the central tenets of the Christian faith as outlined on our uh, website. And we want to know that they are walking consistently um, in ways that are um, along those lines, as a Christian should. We right. want them to be role models. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because you guys were referencing this a couple of minutes ago when you have any kind of secular group, atheist group or what have you. It doesn't seem that there's much of a clash when those groups put leaders into place who comply with what the values are of that particular group, unless they're Christians. It just seems to come down to that. And and I'm wondering, Travis, on the hostility toward Christianity angle, you know, how do you how do you ultimately make a legal argument that broadens the question the way that you were referencing a couple of minutes ago that this isn't just for Christians this isn't just in the best interest of Christians although it is in the best interest of Christian groups but also in the best interests of anybody who's trying to form a group on campus 
Well, we make that argument in much the same way as I explained a few minutes ago, that the, the, this freedom to gather around a shared set of ideas and a shared set of beliefs and to select leaders that uphold those beliefs is in the best interest of everybody. It serves – it, it benefits all students, all perspectives, all student groups. And it, but it is it, – it's particularly ironic that Ratio Christie would be singled out in this fashion on so many campuses because Ratio Christie lets anybody join as a member. Yeah. Of any persuasion of any faith, anybody can join as a member. Anybody can attend its events. The only time that there's a, a criteria put in place is for those who are actually going to lead the organization, who are going to speak for the organization, who are going to teach the organization's perspective on the Christian faith and on the reasons for the Christian faith. You know, those are the very people where there should be some sort of criteria, and those are the I mean, it's the same sort of common sense criteria that all organizations put in place to make sure that their leaders actually express the, the message that the organization exists to express. Well, it makes perfect sense. And we'll be watching this case with great interest. Corey Miller and Travis Parham, thank you guys so much for being here. We'll be praying for you and look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Proverbs 29:17 says, "Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart." That is a great assurance that discipline done in a godly way will pay off someday. But in the moment, a lot of us Christian moms and dads wonder if we are disciplining our children in the right way, and especially if we're disciplining them in a biblical way. So today we're going to examine six discipline mistakes parents make with Ginger Hubbard. She is an author and speaker and co-hosts the Parenting with Ginger Hubbard podcast. And Ginger, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Hi, Janet. I'm well. I appreciate you having me back on. Well, I'm glad you're here. Whenever we talk about the subject of disciplining children, we have to first approach the reason that we are disciplining them, especially as Christian parents. What would you say is the biblical purpose of disciplining your children? I mean, sometimes you can fall into this idea that I just got to get her back in her seat because she's getting on my nerves. But long term, <laughs> what are we what are we really doing when we're disciplining our kids? Well, our whole purpose in training and disciplining our children is to help them understand that their sinful behavior stem from a sinful heart, and that the only cure for a sinful heart is Jesus. And so that's what I like to talk about, is to not depend on these worldly methods for disciplining our kids that fail to expose the heart issues that drive that outward behavior, because we don't want to miss the opportunities to point them to their need for Jesus, who is their only hope for real change. Well, right. So when you're saying that, that we really have to focus on showing our kids their sinful heart, 
the end goal is not just to say, hey, look, little Johnny, you're a sinner. Now you know you're a sinner and end there clearly. But as far as a biblical goal, where are we headed with that revealing the, uh, of the child's heart and the truth about the child's heart? Where are we really trying to take them in the long run? In the long run, we want to help them understand that it's not just their outward behavior, but it's the the sin issues of the heart. So we want to help them see past that outward behavior and figure out what is going on in their hearts. And then when they see that and they recognize that there's sin there and they take ownership for that, then that helps them to recognize their need for Christ. So our ultimate goal is to point them to their need for Christ. That's great. That's great. Would you say that parents today tend to err more on the side of too harshly disciplining their kids or not disciplining their kids enough? or kind of a combination? I would say a combination. I think a lot of parents today, you know, they either ignore their kids, which um, because sometimes that's more convenient. It does take time to train our kids up in the way they should go. But to ignore our children is to selfishly place our own interest above the interest and the well-being of the child. And then, uh, you know, discipline and consequences certainly have their place, but they're not a substitute for training and instructing our kids. Right. And so that's the whole package, you know, that we're after in training our kids. Yeah, that's true. The ones who tend to ignore their children, I think, are the ones who always sit next to me on airplanes. I, and I try very <laughs> hard. I'm serious. <laughs> it's yep, like, same. yeah, these are the parents who have never heard the word no. And I, I, I'm like, I kind of wish the disciplinarians would sit next to me sometimes because it can get a little nuts sometimes. But this is true. Mm-hmm. This is true. You can err on both sides. You can be too harsh or you can be too easy. But you're talking about these six discipline mistakes that parents make. The first one you point out is bribing. Now, talk a little bit about that particular mistake, why that's a mistake, and how you see parents sometimes employing this mistake. Okay, well, and I do think that's probably one of the most common discipline mistakes that parents make that that really fails to reach the heart. It's probably one of the easiest traps to fall into because it's so tempting. You know, this is what this looks like, to say something like, honey, if you obey mom in the store today, I'll give you some candy. <laughs> and you know, it wasn't too long ago I observed a, a mom in Walmart telling her, he looked like he was maybe three years old, uh, to come to her. And the child ignored his mom and took off running in the other direction. <laughs> and then in desperation, this mom yelled down the aisle at Walmart, come to mommy and I'll give you a sucker. Oh, no. And, you know, Janet, you've seen those kids, too. Of course, yep. the child goes from um, uh, from hearing impaired to exceptional hearing <laughs> all of a sudden. Yeah. It comes very quickly. But the problem is that this is not training the child in obedience. This is rewarding the child for stubbornness because giving them a reward in order to get them to obey, well, that encourages them in selfishness. Because their motive for obeying is, sure, I'll obey for what I can get out of it. And that's a selfish reason. Children should be taught to obey because it's right and because it pleases God not to get a reward. Well, right. And it also sets up the situation such that he's in charge more than mom's in charge. What about that when you're doing the flipping of the authority here? The kid is calling the shots. The mother will give in. Who's really in charge then? And that sets the whole structure of the family on its head. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And kids, when we do that, they become confused because they don't really know who is the parent and who is the child. Yeah. So we don't ever want them to be on a peer level with us. I think that kids find comfort and security 
and knowing where their boundaries are, are and that the parent is lovingly um, providing these boundaries uh, in their best interest. That's good. Would you say there's ever a time when you could offer some sort of reward to a child just in a moment of desperation? Is there ever an opportunity that you would have where you'd say, that's okay. If you're in that kind of a situation and you want to offer some kind of treat to your child for obeying, then that's a situation where it would work. Yeah, and you know, nothing is really black and white here as far as that there's one, you know, right way to handle. The Bible certainly doesn't say you can't give your child a reward if they're doing something good. Um, a good example is that I, I got an uh, email question just the other day with a mom saying, I heard you talking about that it's not good to bribe our kids, but I'm trying to potty train, and mm-hmm. that's really helping to give um, a little, like she was giving him a jelly belly every time he went to the, to the bathroom on his own. And that was great. Yeah. You know, I think that, that, so yes, absolutely. I don't think there are any hard, fast rules here. Just in, just as a, in general, though, we want to teach our children to do what's right out of a love for God rather than just what they can get out of it. But Excellent. sure, I think there's exceptions and every family's different. For sure. Now, what about the second mistake, threatening? This is also a, a pitfall that parents can fall into. What about threatening? What have you seen along these lines? Well, I've seen that threatening usually comes after we have repeated our instructions several times to no avail, and so we pull out the big gun. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't start sharing your toys right now, I'm going to send them all off to kids who will share. But, you know, this teaches them that mom doesn't mean what she says. You know, I mean, how many of our parents, in an attempt to get us to appreciate our toys, talked about the kids on the other side of the world who don't have any toys? (laughs) But how many of our parents actually followed through with that threat and packed up and shipped all of our toys off? Probably not too many. And so we need to avoid saying things that we don't mean because this is how we get ourselves in a pickle. If we tell our kids that there's going to be a consequence, then there really needs to be a consequence. Because if there's not, we're going to cause our children to question our word. And if we cry wolf too many times, we'll eventually lose our effectiveness because our kids will lose respect for our authority. So they need to have that confidence that our word is our word. And then um, when they have that confidence, it actually brings a sense of security into their lives. Well, and one of the tricks here when you're talking about using threats as some kind of disciplinary tool is the mom who says, how do I get my child to obey the first time? Well, you're never going to be able to probably do that every single time. But what would you say to that mom? How do I get my child to behave without having to resort to using threats? Well, I offer a three-step plan and all of my um, resources where I really encourage the mom to first try to get to the heart. Like, let's talk about the mom that we, we said in the beginning that the child took off running in the other direction. So I would go to that child who's two or three years old and, you know, don't just half-heartedly instruct, but maybe kneel down and say, you know, sweetheart, I told you to come to me and you didn't, was that obeying or disobeying? And just putting just a very simple question like that, was that obeying or disobeying, that helps the child to begin to take ownership for the sin that's in his heart, which ultimately is going to help him recognize his need for Christ. And then step two is to say, you know, how do you need to obey? And something that I taught my kids at a very early age is I could hold up three fingers and say, how does God want you to obey? And I taught them to say, all the way, right away and with a joyful heart. Hmm. Now, did they always do that? No, (laughs) (laughs) but that is the goal. That is what we want to teach our kids. And then um, 
you know, so you always want to tell them, get to the heart, and then teach them what to put off, which is disobeying, and then what to put on, which is obeying. Good. We're going to take a short break. Ginger Hubbard is with us. We're talking about six discipline mistakes parents make. And we'll be back right after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, the rising costs of health insurance have really taken a toll on a lot of people, especially during this pandemic. Why do your members recommend Liberty HealthShare? Well, it really does change the way that you approach healthcare when it comes to healthcare sharing. Because each individual member of Liberty HealthShare is what we call a self-pay patient or a private pay patient, where we're each individually responsible and able to guide and manage and direct our own health care free from the constraints of government controls or third-party insurance systems. It really changes the whole methodology by which you approach health care to where you start seeing yourself as the only owner of your health rather than just somebody who's entitled to a program because you paid some money. And we see lower costs, greater accessibility, and frankly, better outcomes. Tell us about the personal interaction that your members experience with Liberty HealthShare. Well, it's important in Liberty HealthShare to know that we're not just bodies in need of getting our bodies fixed. (laughs) We're also spiritual beings that need to be in relationship and connection with other people. So in our system, online system that we call ShareBox, we have what we call a prayer box, where our members come together to pray for each other in times of need, to help support one another, and let everyone know that you're not alone. During these times that are unprecedented and can be very lonely, you've got an entire nationwide community right behind you, praying for you, here for you as an individual and a member. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Ephesians 6.4 tells us fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a duty of all Christian parents to discipline our children. Easier said than done sometimes, but we are getting some guidance on this today from Ginger Hubbard, who is best-selling author and speaker and co-host of the Parenting with Ginger Hubbard podcast. Six discipline mistakes parents make. We've gotten through two of these so far, Ginger, and I want to try to hit the other ones as well. Repeating instructions, you say, is one of the discipline discipline mistakes that parents make. Why is that a mistake? Well, because if you think about it, uh, well, threatening is kind of the one we just talked about is sort of along the same lines as repeating our instructions or going back on our instructions, which are also traps we don't want to fall into. Um, my oldest son, Hudson, he is a total history buff, especially when it comes to battles and war history. And he's really helped me to have a deeper understanding of battle strategies and how our military works. Mm. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that when we look at some of the most admirable and successful generals in our country, we see that they all had one thing in common. 
they were certain of their commands before they issued them. Right. And, you know, if you think about it, soldiers don't respect or respond well to uncertain or an inconsistent leader, which is interesting because it goes right along with the same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians fourteen eight. He said, for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? And that is how it is in parenting. If we issue these half-hearted commands to our children and we're repeating our instructions over and over and we don't require them to follow through, we're sending them mixed signals. And that can even cause our children to question their own positions in the family because they become uncertain of when and how to respond to our instructions. Right. Now, what if you give a confident instruction as a certain leader and the child still doesn't respond? That's that's the moment we all have at times where we say, okay, I think I did the right thing, but my child doesn't seem to care that I did what I think is the right thing to do in this moment, then what? What do you, what do you tell the parent to do? Well, for, for one, I always tell the parent to make sure they're giving clear instructions instead of just being at the other end of the house and, you know, yelling something out half-heartedly. You know, always, if it's a small child, kneel down, make eye-to-eye contact and give those instructions and then make sure they, they understand, you know, do you understand what I'm telling you to do and have them respond? And then if they don't do what you have asked them to do, then that is what, that is direct disobedience. And so there would need to be a consequence. And we need to be consistent with consequences or our children are, again, they're going to get mixed signals. And when we're consistent with consequences, they also learn the law of the harvest. They learn that God has built the principle of sowing and reaping into their worlds, which is going to hopefully encourage them to make wise decisions. That's right. Now, your next one is appealing to emotions. What is that when you're when you're in the disciplinary moment and you appeal to emotions, why is that a mistake? What would be an example of that? Mm, okay, a good example. And, you know, I can relate to that as a mom. I think that uh, women sometimes fall into this trap. And here's the way that, that I might have that did fall into it a couple of times, which is this mentality um, of, after all I do for you, <laughs> this is how you repay me. <laughs> you know, but that is... That's not how we want to do it. Um, as, as moms, we do so much for our kids, and we do make so many sacrifices for our children. Um, so it can be easy for us to start feeling sorry for ourselves and think that our kids actually owe us obedience. But we want their motives for obeying to come from a heart that pleases God, not from a parent-inflicted guilt trip. Right. And, you know, let me just say that putting a guilt trip on our kids might sometimes be effective in manipulating their behavior. But even if it does, it stems from a wrong motive. If we... it would be more with a motive of people-pleasing, and that is not a healthy way to live. And, you know, take that from a certified uh, recovering people-pleaser. <laughs> well, you so, know what? Again, we, yeah, exactly. What well, you know, what makes me laugh about that kind of the strings attached thing where, you know, I went through 15 hours of labor with you and you don't even appreciate me. <laughs> all, they do, all they do in that moment anyway, Ginger, is they turn around and they say, I didn't ask to be born. And then what do you do? You know, that's the the go to line of a lot of these kids. That's right. We love them, but they they always have a good comeback. So that's good advice. What about Mm -hmm. counting? Counting, especially with little kids. We seem to think that counting to three, for example, Mm -hmm. will give them that little extra time to obey. You say that's not such a good idea. It's not. um, It's not. And, you know, those parents are all around us. We see them doing that. If you don't do this by the time I count to three, you're going to get it. And then you watch them. They count. They say one and the child doesn't move. (laughs) And then they say two and the child still doesn't move. And then they say 
two and a half. And so it goes. But here's the thing, Janet. Children will rise to the standard that the parent set. If you don't expect your child to obey until you count to three, well, he's probably not going to obey until you count. Sure. So why not expect instant obedience? Because that really leaves no room for question or confusion. It's so much easier. It's so much more peaceful. It's definitely more biblical. And you know what? Think about it. I mean, if my small child is about to step off the curb into a busy street, I don't want to have to count to three before he obeys. Right, right. That's it. That's because you never know when you're going to have to instantly obey. And if you're out of the habit, that can be deadly. You're you're absolutely Uh correct on that. Reasoning with small children is another one of the discipline mistakes parents make. How small? When you're saying reasoning with small children, how small are you thinking? Under three, under five? How? What? What age? Well, I think that I think it really does depend on the child, and I'm not talking about, of course, the older child where some mature, respectful reasoning might be appropriate. Sometimes I'm talking about reasoning with really young kids, even a six-year-old. All right, well, let's just do this. Let's say mom asks her six-year-old, "Honey, don't you want to come and eat lunch now?" <laughs> mm, no, thanks, mom. I'm playing with my cars. Oh, but sweetie, your hot dog's going to get cold if you don't come and eat it now. Mm. That's okay, Mom. I'd rather play with my cars. But, honey, if you'll come on and eat right now, I thought we might have time to go to the park after lunch. (laughs) Okay, Mom. I'll be there in just a minute. You see, instead of just simply telling her son what she wanted and then expecting that prompt obedience, this mom is trying to talk her child into obeying. And the problem with that is that parents who try to reason with their young children normally end up frustrated and quite often outwitted, like you just said a moment ago. You <laughs> yes. know, the child outwitted the parent. Yes. And and they and then they usually wind up resorting to a bribe in order to get the response thereafter. And just real quickly, the, the reasoning with young children in an attempt to get them to obey, again, that causes confusion because it places them in a position that they are not mature or responsible enough to handle. It erases that line of authority between the parent and the child, and it places that child on a peer level with a parent. Yes. That's not wise. Yeah. We need to clearly instruct our children and then, and then teach them that obedience is what's right, and that's in their best interest. Well, and if you think about it, pulling back a little bit emotionally from the situation as it's unfolding, you don't want to be in a position, it would seem, to persuade your five-year-old to come for lunch. That's just a ridiculous situation to get into, <laughs> you know, because you, you, will, you will train that child that the child is calling the shots and poor mom is just going to have to make a really good case for him to come and eat the hot dog while it's hot. And, and, and mm-hmm. then in time, I mean, and this is something else that I know that you address, which is the issue of who you create in the long run if you make these kinds of mistakes. What, what is ahead for you if you fall into some of these parenting mistakes, would you say, especially as these kids get to be teenagers, for example? Right. And, you know, and that's a really good point because our goal is to really keep those. This is the opposite of how so many parents do it today. But our goal is to keep those, you know, those reins pretty tight when they're younger so that they learn to live in wisdom instead of foolishness. They learn to obey and to do what's right. And then as they get older, we want to loosen those reins because they earn freedoms. But instead, we see parents doing the opposite. The, the kids have, you know, they have free reign of everything they want to do. And so you have these undisciplined uh, kids with no self-control. And think about it. it. It's really sad because children that have no self-control and they're not taught to obey, they're unhappy children. 
they're always whining and crying and screaming. Yeah. They're so unhappy. And so there's, there's so much more joyful living when that balance is there where we train them when they're little. And then as they grow into their teen years, they really should have, honestly, a lot more freedom than parents today give them because they've been trained to make wise choices and wise decisions and to do what's right. And so that's what we're after. But when we let them do whatever they want to do and and just rule the house and rule their own lives, then they grow up to be teenagers and then they're out doing things they don't need to do. And then we start tightening the reins. Mm. And that's not how God intended it. And so then they rebel. Right. And so it, it just, it's just not the best way to do it. So it's better to train our children. Take that time. It's hard, but take that time to train them when they're younger. And then you're really going to reap the fruits of giving them these freedoms as they get older, like God intended them to have. And that's going to keep the, re- the, the parent-child relationship in the right kind of balance. Well, that is really good advice. And you can find more at gingerhubbard.com and check out more of the information that Ginger so wisely dispenses to our benefit. Ginger, so good to talk to you again. Thank you very, very much for being with us and for your great advice. Thank you, Janet. All right. Take care. God bless you. Thanks for being here on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to have you with us and we'll see you next time.